0: Hebrews chapter 12. Let's dive into this together. If, if you've been with us in this series, you know that uh, we're looking at the supremacy in Christ and all things, how it affects our life to know God as he desires to make himself known in, in scripture. And, and the book of Hebrews is a beautiful book. And we have just been blowing through this book, just a chapter at a time, taking out the chunks of the big pictures that are created for us in these passages of scripture. Very important. Book of Hebrews is a beautiful book. Sometimes we come to it, it's difficult to understand it. It's one of the more complex books in the New Testament. And the reason is, is because it's so deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It it ties together from beginning to end the picture of scripture. And so if you get the concepts of what Hebrews talks about, you have a good overview of what the Bible is about. And then it switches gears. If we're going through that, we've done that through the first 10 chapters and about chapter 10, it switches gears for us and it starts making the practical application. In light of all that Christ is, Hebrews ties together the story of redemption in Jesus. How the Old Testament was a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill for us in him. And so we now look to Jesus. Everything is in Christ. In fact, Hebrews starts off that way. In times past, God spoke to us through the prophets. Today, he speaks to us in Christ. And what God has done for us is establishing this new covenant. Uh, Old Testament, they looked for this new covenant. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one; Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six talks about a new covenant. What Jesus would do for us on the cross, bringing us in relationship to God, because He paid for our sin and reconciles us to the Lord as we put our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Religion will never do it. Only Christ could do it. In fact, to choose anything other than Jesus is t- to diminish what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. It talks about that in Galatians chapter 2. And as you get to chapter 10, it starts to share with us now, how do you apply this to your life? And you probably notice as we go through this series, this is where I've really tapped the brakes. And I, I want to I move through this um, in a very... <laughs> Uh, not, let's just say not as fast as we've done before. I want to be aware of exactly what the, the writer is saying as we look through this verse by verse and relating all of this to our lives. And in chapter 12, he summarizes the idea with the thought of running. And he uses this concluding word when he begins this chapter saying, therefore, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance, or let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin and let us run with endurance uh, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so now he's calling us to run in uh, Christ and to look at the hope that we have in him. And when we talk about running a race, and especially with endurance, let's, let's just be honest and say, sometimes it's, it's just not easy. Life can take it out of you. And that's true with the people in the book of Hebrews. Uh, They're about to face tremendous persecution in the early church that would last 250 years. Life has adversity. And sometimes you just don't feel like running. And this passage calls you to not only run, but to do it with endurance. And it's thinking towards the longevity of your life. And sometimes we're just like, man, I just want to make it through today. And so the author starts to share in the book of, of Hebrews where you find that strength. That, that's the first 11 verses of this chapter. That's what we took some time to go through that. We broke it up into two weeks. So you've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, reminding us that this, this cloud of witnesses, they're just not watching you as spectators, but the word witness actually means martyr. And so they're not witnessing of you, but witnessing to you that what God calls you to, he provides the strength for you. And sometimes we look at what scripture says about, about godly individuals, which we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Hebrews chapter 11, that's, that's the story of faith. We see all of these great leaders in Christ, and we try to compare our lives to that. And, and, and the news for us, guys, is you're not them. And, and truthfully, if you examine their lives... They weren't that great, they were deeply flawed in in, in their own walks with the Lord. And you're not them. And so when God calls you to run this race, look, I think it's very important to understand, God's not calling you to run another person's race. He's not calling you to look at other people and to see all the things that they have and all the godly things that they do and just stress yourself out about all the things that you're, you're not capable of because you're not them. God doesn't call you to be them God calls you to be you in him. God knows where you're at. I think even in position of being in ministry, man, my, my heart is for people. I love people and I want to be everywhere that people people are. And I can stress myself out if I just think about how I could fill people not always being able to be there. And it's, it, it can get ugly. You just start serving the ministry. You know what happens to a person after they get feel the need to always do and always do and it's never enough and, and or people put that demand on you, which I, I just I will just reject that. Um, you get cynical, and you get bent bitter, and you get burned. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And you just hate. You end up hating what, what is created in pursuing God. I mean, God doesn't call you to that. God knows right where you are. He's not surprised by your circumstances. He's not surprised by the challenges. But he calls you to run the race with endurance. So where you are, before the Lord, don't, who cares what other people think? Before the Lord, are you faithful to him? That's it. You live your life for an audience of one. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12, that's what God's calling you to in Him. It's, just, it's faithfulness. When you get to the end of your life, that's, God's not going to look at the list of everything you performed in comparison to other people and try to judge you based on those standards. He just wants to know one thing Are you faithful? Did you come to Jesus? Trust in Jesus? Just walk with Jesus. This run of endurance. And look, these cloud of witnesses are saying to us that God is able, what he calls you to, God is able. It's this place of trust. And he says, put your eyes on Jesus. Don't compare to these other things. Put your eyes on Jesus. And here's how you know you can do it. Because Christ came in the flesh and Christ lived it. Verse three and four, that's what I said. Christ lived this out in the flesh. Like he lived what it was like to be a man. So we know it's possible. He's demonstrated that in, in his life. And then he says this beautiful thing for us in chapter, uh, ch- chapter 12, verses five to 11. We looked at last week. He, he's talking about this idea of discipline, which is a scary, freaky word, if I'm being honest. Like I don't, I'm not, you use the word discipline and I'll talk about all the other godly topics. I am not signing up for discipline, God. But what discipline is actually saying is maturity. Discipline doesn't have to be bad. Like God loves you where you are, and God loves you too much to leave you there. God wants to do a miraculous work in your life, in your heart. And so for us, it's about surrendering to this king to let him do it in us. It's not by, by our strength. And so he compares it in those verses to this, this thought of a father coming alongside of a child. When you think about parenting a kid, as a parent, it's not about just winning the the. the 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 little battles. It's about the overall war. It's about looking to where you want your child to to be in the future. What kind of man or woman do you want them to be? And so you're training them towards that ultimate goal. And Sometimes you give in to to battles to win the war, right? And so this this is God walking with us as a loving father, side by side. So when he calls us to run this race, he's not saying, good luck, you're on your own, I don't care. In the end, I'll tell you if you fail or not. He wants to walk with you. And so, in in, in verse twelve, uh, this important passage this is where we're going to pick up. Is in, in verse twelve, he says, "Therefore, he gives us another summary word." So, so first eleven verses are, are running this race, and, and it's everything God wants you to know about your position in Him. So, this is where God's meeting you in running this race. And now, in verse twelve, he's saying, "Now, now, g- let's run this. This is how we want you to do it." He's going to give you five ways to run this race in this passage. But this is where he starts. Therefore. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb, which is lame, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So he's saying, get up. Like life can take it out of you. It can. But here's where we got to put our eyes. We got to put our eyes on Jesus and understand where God meets us in this run, running with endurance. And you've got to get up. God is with you. He knows where you are. Get up. And he's saying in this passage that, that as we get up as, as God's people, we, we make these, these paths straight. and the, the limbs which are lame may not be put out of joint, but rather they're healed. And here's, here's what I think happens, guys. When God starts working in us as, as we've given our lives to him and we see him moving um, Sometimes we find ourselves in different positions in the body of Christ. Sometimes we're on mountaintops, we feel strong, sometimes we feel weak. But you know what happens when, when God's doing something in the life of a believer and they start to just acknowledge it? And people, people are encouraged by the, way, by the way God heals and the way God works and the way God moves. And it just breathes life to the body that's a beautiful thing. Like we think about, just, we've been doing baptisms over the last few weeks of people that have, have talked about what God's done in their lives and, and, and how beautiful that is. How encouraging to see in this valley, God working. And as we move together, it, it, we just think about the hope of, of all that comes in, in Christ because of what he's, he's doing. With the, what Jesus does, now, it's, it's a walking miracle. So he says, "Make this this these paths straight, and and let God work. Just, just get up, and, and and we're running with Him, who is a Father. And then he starts to list out these these five ways that we should run as believers, and how to set this trajectory. And this is what he says: Pursue peace with all men. <laughs> Pursue peace with all men. I mean, what a what a beautiful word." Pursue peace. I mean, if you just let that thought—those just two words—just set in your soul, I, I think as human beings we crave for that. I just want peace. I mean, if if everyone would just do what I wanted to do, then we would have it, right? <laughs> if you don't see the fallacy in that statement, then I can tell you you're the problem, right? <laughs> Pursuing peace, and this idea of pursuing, it, it literally means strive. This is something we're, we're working toward. And, and sometimes we think about the word peace. I, I, I want to be careful with the perception that we, we have about peace because sometimes we look at peace and we're like, yeah, the person, the person that we call pansy. Like P, being someone of peace, you're just a pushover. You just want to, you, you just want to slide everything on the rug and make sure everyone gets equal treatment, And then you just, which we do want equality as people were creating the image of God, but, but you just, let's just get along. Can not we all just get along? Who cares? We'll, we'll just give in to the bad bully so that we can just have peace. And, and if that's your picture of peace, yes, that's a pretty pansy picture of peace, but that's not biblical peace. When you think about peace and the idea of striving for peace, it's saying we're working towards something. And I'm just being honest when we think about this, that when we talk about biblical peace, it takes a strong individual to live that out. In fact, Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And sometimes when we think about pansy peace, we read it like this. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Guys, don't fight. You know, (laughs) Let's, let's just being nice—that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not saying you're keeping the peace. He's saying you're strong enough to make the peace. That's a completely different concept, and the idea or the perception it creates for us as being peacemakers versus peacekeepers. Peacemakers are not wimps. I think peacemakers have to carry a bit of a meekness with them, but if you think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. I'm a poet and didn't know it, right? <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. You know why? Because this peace is rooted in something. Peace isn't just about, let's just be good, or let's not work through struggles, or you, know, you have your truth and I'll have mine, The idea of peace in this context and in scripture is rooted in an identity from where it comes. And that identity is is in the gospel. And so he's saying in this passage uh, that that we're called in this to pursue peace with all men. And so when we think about the idea of peace, the context for which we pursue it is all men. And if we know something about all men, not all men are interested in peace. And yet God calls us to that. The reality is we can't force peace, but you can lay the road for it. In the book of Romans, it it, it says it like this for us. It it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I mean, sometimes it's unattainable between two individuals because someone else just isn't interested in it. When it comes to being a believer, the attitude that we carry is that we make it hard for people to hate us that we aren't the problem. Rather, we are the gospel. We live the gospel. We don't throw mud. Some people are unhealthy. And if you're a peacekeeper, you tolerate it. You just let them be. But in tolerating it, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help them. Doesn't help the people around you. What God calls us to is to make peace. We come to those situations we say, look, I'm not going to contribute to what this is, but here's, here's where we're called to. This is the path of making peace. When we, we call, we're called to making peace. It's meaning we lay, we lay the foundation or we pave the road for reconciliation in the circumstance, but we don't necessarily give in to the demands of, of someone else because what, what they're living in may not be healthy so we can't make peace with everyone, but we certainly don't shut the door for the opportunity for God to let the gospel work in their lives. Do you know who does this beautifully? Jesus. And peace was a mark of the gospel. And Jesus says, I love you. And Jesus still calls out sin. Some of the craziest things in scripture when you read, the Pharisees get so mad at Jesus, but the, the people that are hanging out with Jesus tells you are the sinners, the, the the drunkards, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. They were attracted to Jesus. Jesus didn't shy away from the, the truth that made for peace in relationship to him. And he still loved them deeply. In their lives, there, there was the, the attraction to who Christ was because, because he valued their identity. And in our lives, what we end up doing because people don't agree with us is we, we not, not just disagree with the idea, but we diminish the person. Leaving no path for Peace. God calls us to be peacemakers. In fact, it says this in First in Peter 2, by the way, this, this first point I want to tell you, I'm going to spend more time on this idea of peace because it carries the concept through in this passage. But First Peter 2, it says this, Keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What well, you see Peter calling them to is, that, look, he knows people People are, are not going to pursue peace. He knows the, that the world is going to stand in opposition. But God's people seek and pursue things that make peace to the point that they make it hard for people to hate them. And those people are able to see the glory of who God is. Peacemakers. To be a peacemaker, you have to come to serve for the benefit of others. And the truth is, it's found because of your, your confidence and your position before God. Make peace. Why peace? Because for us, peace isn't just about being calm. Peace is about reconciliation. You put it in the context of our world today. There, I mean, I'm gonna probably turn on the TV sometime this evening, and I'm probably gonna watch some football. And you can't help but think, gee, this has sure been clouded in the last year or two over just some controversial things. People arguing back and forth about positions in certain things. And I find myself, I'm just being frank with, with you, in the middle of the context, I find myself as a person looking at this positionally, saying, I don't like racism. And I like honoring people. And, and people throwing these two positions together. But can I tell you, the thing that heals all of it The thing that brings truth to everything—I mean, we we could go on in our country today: Democrat, Republican, Hillary, Trump, Russia, and on. Right? I mean, just pick it. Everyone's got opinions, and your opinion's going to fix it, right? But do you know what really heals all of that? At the end of the day, if one of those sides wins, do you think that's the cure? Temporarily, it might bring relief, but can I tell you what heals it all? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Government isn't ultimate hope, guys. I mean, you wanna really end racism? How about the one who created us equally in him, right? It's not the social issue that's gonna win. That social issue will only be as good as the people that promote the gospel behind it because it's God who defines the purpose for our existence and the identity that we have as people. Don't be fooled into thinking it's the issue. I, I'm not saying issues aren't important. I'm not saying that. But, but the issues aren't what drive it. It's truth. I mean, you can always get to the end of those issues. And if that issue wins, you can be like, so what? Why? Why is that important? Why is that important? Where is the foundation for why this is important? And just doing it because gives you no foundation for it to ultimately matter in the end. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It is. It's what gives us the ability to understand what it means to honor people because we're created in the image of God. It's the ability in racial tension in the lives of people because we're all created as one people. There's only one race in scripture. It's the human race. There's different ethnicities. But it's the gospel. The gospel that unites all of it for us. And so this idea of pursuing peace carries the thought of, of, of just knowing in our mind what makes for peace for us is the gospel. So this word peace is rooted in the gospel. And I think even in our context, some people don't like the majority of their community. The things that happen around them. Rather than love people, we bash them. Rather than build bridges and share the gospel of peace, we tear them down and make war. Guys, it's biblical to love people regardless of where they are and to serve them for the sake of the gospel. That's the only thing that changes hearts. I mean, that's what changes yours with Jesus. You are an enemy of God and he made the way for peace. You think about people that irk you or get you tense and you think about what Jesus says to us in, in scripture and I might not have it. Oh, uh, no, I don't. Jesus says in Matthew five forty three, he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. It's the idea of, uh, of making peace. And so let me just say this bluntly and move on. But therefore, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you have no want or desire to love and care for the people around you, let me just ask two things. One, be honest with God where your heart is. I and mean, God calls you to be a peacemaker. Just be honest on that struggle. Or two, if you have no concern in being honest before the God over the war in your own heart, you have no care or concern for the people around you, you'd rather bash them than serve them, go worship somewhere else. Now let me say, guys, I say that for the sake of believers, right? So if you're in a place where you're questioning and challenging and wanting to look in scripture, um, good. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and you're more interested in tearing the people down around you than to lovingly serve them and make peace, for the health of the church, worship somewhere else. I care about this community. I care about their hearts, right? Right? God doesn't call us to fight against them. God calls us to fight for them. The people in this world, they're not the deceivers, they're the deceived. And if you have the gospel that lays the foundation for reconciliation with God, make peace. Like when you look at this passage and you think about running, I, my, my heart in this verse is just look at this and say, God, please, please let this be me. I know I'm not perfect, but God, do not let my heart run from these words. These words can be painful. These words can be hard. God, I want to quit running. And then verse 12, 13, he says, get up, make peace. Make peace. And then he says it like this. In, in the rest of the passage, he says, uh, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord. This idea of sanctification is the word for holiness or set apart. So, so let, me, let me put it like this for you. Do you want, you want to know what I think about this verse? Um, nobody? Does anybody want to know what I think about this verse? Yeah. Okay, okay. What I think about this verse is, I don't, it doesn't matter what I think about this verse. Like when we talk about running after the Lord, what it means is, God, what do you think, right? And so this idea of sanctification and holiness is saying, who cares what Nathaniel thinks for a minute, okay? In our culture today, we base a lot of, um, a lot of theology off of how we feel. It's, it's this postmodern existential way of thinking. You define your own truth and reality. But the problem with that is, is we didn't create it. And if we didn't create it, we shouldn't be defining it. And if you want to step into a healthy pattern of living in this life, it doesn't start with you. It starts with God. And so rather than, sorry, I baited all you guys to say yes there that said yes, but rather than caring about what I think, this idea of sanctification, which no one will see the Lord is is saying to us, look, holiness is setting apart your heart for, for Christ. And so it starts with God, what do you think? I'm pursuing peace, setting apart myself for for your glory. Otherwise, no one will see the Lord. And so my heart surrendered in this thought for you, God. And then he goes in these last three things. He talks about So in the beginning, it's you and what you're pursuing. So this idea of peace, setting yourself apart, laying down your life that God can work through you. And now he talks about external to to where you are. And so in verse 15, he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it means to oversee. Oversee that this happens. We all have this responsibility. This is where you're looking. Oversee for everyone around you that you count life. Oversee. They, 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 no one fails or falls short to see the grace of God. There was an emperor, 4th century, Emperor Julian. Thinking about Christians and the grace of God. He said... About, about Christianity, he was alive from 330 to 363. He, he referred to Christianity as atheism, believe it or not. It's kind of a unique thing for Christianity. But in, in the first century, Christians only worshipped one God. In Rome, that has tons and tons of gods. When you look at a Christian only worshipping one God, they, they got referred to as atheists quite often. And so he says this atheism, or Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. What Julian is saying is the Christian community got so good at caring for people and the grace of God that that was bestowed to them, That they even started to care for people outside of their community so much so that the people outside of the community didn't need to turn anywhere else, and it was a shame to them, because the Christians oversaw this. Let me say it like this: If if you think there's someone around you that doesn't deserve the grace of God, you don't understand grace. By definition, it's meriting favor that we do not deserve. There isn't a person in this room that got to where you are today apart from grace. And so for us, we understand that this is the root of the gospel. That God's grace meets us in our darkest places and heals our greatest needs. And so we oversee the idea of His grace in this world. We aren't surprised when people act in sin. Because we know our own heart. We're sinful, but God's grace renews us every day. That well never runs dry, and as people, we have opportunity to emulate it and share it. Um, I love how he then talks about this grace, and then he shares this next thought against that, because when you go serving in this world and you extend his grace, what often can happen to us is what happens in this next part. It says this that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This is so important. And when you do ministry, you'll meet people that rub you raw, people will take advantage. I mean, when you care about a soul and that soul is in a place that needs help, sometimes you get to those places because you've taken advantage. And so as you minister in those arenas with people that are sinful, people will disappoint you. And then what happens? It can make you bitter. You help somebody out. They take advantage. And the next time a different person steps in, And you you say to yourself, I've already seen how this goes. Root of bitterness comes in. You start projecting uh, future failures on past experiences and assuming things. And and, and so that that attitude of bitterness just takes root in your heart and really Satan uses that to prohibit you from all the hope that God can bring in the life of of the people around you. The people in this context, they're going to go through persecution. They're going to suffer. In fact, we, we looked at it in previous chapters, in chapter 10, where they saw friends thrown in jail. They, they, they had the loss of their possessions, their property. An opportunity for the root of bitterness. It says in this passage, it will spread. If you looked at it in in the context of Ephesians four, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is actually a building of what happens with bitterness. This is why it becomes uh, so toxic for people. You get bitter and then it starts with anger and clamor and wrath. It gets all the way to the point of malice. And malice literally means in the Greek physical harm. So at first it roots in your heart, then it comes out in your vocabulary and you start spewing the toxin until you just sock somebody in the face, right? And then it contrasts it. You contrast that thought in verse 32, but rather do this. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. Just as Christ has also forgiven you. If you get bitter, because I think what happens to us first is we start to get cynical. And that cynicism negativity can come out you know what's interesting about cynical people? Cynicism doesn't exist in people because they didn't care. Cynicism really is a reflection. At some point, you did care. You just got burnt. And in this passage, he then calls us to to, to step into this. So, so if 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 being bitter and cynical is about Uh, past failures on on future successes like we we live in the past the answer to that is yes the world has problems but before you can start taking the the step out of cynicism here's what you got to do you've got to live in the solution like ever meet those people that are like you know you want to do something but they want to tell you 500 problems of everything that's going to go wrong And that's great, you know what the 500 problems are. I'm not looking for the 500 problems though. I'm looking for the path of success, right? So in all those problems now that you've got that identified, and sometimes we have to work with that, it's good to know what causes the problem so you can prevent it in the future, but here's the step. What's the solution? (laughs) How do you move forward in in the solution? And, And that's what he's saying in verse 32. He's talking about words that are words of solution here. But can I tell you what the solution is? You've already seen it in Hebrews Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Guys, you serve a big God, full of power and hope. So get up, stop, start risking again over what a big God can do. And as you serve, listen, our, our motivation, we, sometimes we can project expectations on people and we see them fall short. And in the, the failure of that, we, we, we get jaded by that and get cynical by that. But our, our goal, our goal in serving God is never about people. It's about honoring him. Our goal is about pleasing him. We don't live our lives based on what people do or don't do. Now that We pursue people in ministry. Ministry exists for people. But it's, it's regardless of what they do. It's always about glorifying him. The goal is always about him. And so people are gonna sometimes embrace it. Sometimes people are gonna reject it. But if you live your life for an audience of one, either way, it's not gonna matter. Because before the Lord, you've been, look, faithful. God's not putting on you the ability to change their heart. And don't wear that. You don't have the power to change someone else's heart. Just walk in the solution. It's not changing them. It's living for Jesus. It's faithful. So how do you do that? Well, it tells us not to do this, but look, it's kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ is also forgiven you. He's like, look, Jesus could have been bitter about you. You don't always do what he wants you to do, right? And thank you, God, you're not. Because he keeps moving towards a solution in your life. He keeps promoting that gospel in us. And right, I gotta move on. One more thing. This, this last thought he says to us. And verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. I, I like this last thought in the example. Because this really becomes an examination for us. Because we could stop and be like, do you like peace? Yes, I like peace. I live, I live for peace, right? You like holiness? Yes, I, I like holiness. You like grace? Yes. Do you want to be bitter? I'm not bitter. I don't want to be cynical. And, and, and so therefore I'm godly, right? And so then he gives this last illustration. It's sort of a testing ground. And when he talks about, in verse 16, uh, that, that there be no immoral or godless behavior or person, he's actually, that word for immoral is actually uh, this pornos, where we get the same word for porno or pornography, and he compares that to Esau. This is, the stories are in uh, Genesis 25 and 27, if you want to read it. But what made Esau's life, what drove Esau's life, was an instantaneous gratification where he puts himself first and he sells his birthright. In an existential culture in which we live, our tendency is to become the definers of our own reality. And when we wake up every day, we start with this question, what will make me most happy? And then we pursue that. In the end, we find really no joy in the people around us either, but no ultimate joy anyway. But but that's what this is. This is defining existential behavior. And to put it in context, he just puts it in sexuality for us. And again, it goes back to the thought, who defines? Who defines what's right or wrong? Because when it comes to living our lives the way God has created us to, you didn't create sexuality. God did. And the one who creates it defines it. Now that's a difficult statement because I know, I know, in humanity we have struggles. And you can compromise it or define it in three ways. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room has to work through and struggle through sexuality in some way because there's always a temptation to go outside of what God calls us to do. there always is. There isn't a person in this room in some way, if you, don't, if you can't think of your way, you can come ask me, I can tell you, whatever it is. I, I mean, I don't, I, without even knowing your context, I, I, I can just, everyone has to struggle, I mean, heterosexual male, attracted to the opposite sex. God calls you to define that sexuality in the context of boundaries. Everyone has to. So let me, let me ask it like this. Just to be consistent with this, guys. Um, is rape wrong? <laughs> it's kind of an easy one, right? <laughs> and hopefully we all say yes. Um, rape is wrong. What if someone comes to me this morning and says, no, nah, I believe rape's Right? You define, I, I believe in existentialism as my truth, so you define it for you and I'll define it for me. What are we gonna appeal to to help that person understand race or, or rape is wrong? Existentialism? Oh, he thinks it's right. I'll well, define your own reality. When we're not careful in our society and we let people do it that way, that's the path it leads to. You don't define truth that way. When, when someone's seriously thinking that rape could be right and you're trying to argue wrong, you've got to go outside of yourself to an objective truth to appeal to it, right? And so when we think this way, let's just be, let, let's just be consistent with the way we define sexuality. What about, what about bestiality? Again, what if someone comes to you and says, well, I think it's right. Where do you appeal to to show it's wrong? What about pornography? What about sex outside of marriage? Where do you stand on homosexuality? Look, when you talk about sexuality, the point is to be consistent. At no point are we the definers of that reality. God is. But the picture in all of this is for us to examine our heart right here. What do you allow to define your identity? Because he appeals to this because he knows lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, people, in in these three degrees we struggle, and sexuality is a big part of it. And we make sexuality our identity. And we live in that impulse for our own pleasure. And so he's saying here in this passage that there be no immorality immoral among you like Esau. And Esau sold his birthright. He gave in to sensuality because that sensuality demonstrated what Esau was pursuing in his life. If everyone would do what I want to do, then we'd just all be happy, right? That's what he said in the beginning. But what he's saying to us in, in this context is, is that this sexuality is a demonstration of what is ultimately leading your heart. It's a good litmus test of saying when it comes to peace, holiness, grace, bitterness. How do you know if God's engaging your life, if God's leading your life? Well, just think about this area of sexuality. What do you surrender to? Hmm. Run the race that's before you. Are you surrendered to God? And serving others for his glory. Or do we put our desires first? We ended this every segment with a picture of church history, but let's let's define church history today as it relates to you. Because running this race is about your time to run. How are you running? What are you running for? At the end of all these weeks of going into church history and I've, I've taken a leader that's made an impact in church history and I've given a quote, right? Sort of a quote that summarized what their life was about. Because at the end of your life, what would be your quote? What's your life about? If people hear you follow Jesus, are they shocked by that? Or is it just consistent with who you are? When God calls us to run this race, he calls us to be peacemakers, set apart from him, extending the grace that hills, not walking in bitterness, cynicism, but to the hope that rests in Christ, not given to our own sensuality that leads, but surrendering ourselves for the cause of Christ. And why can we do that? Because all before us have gone, individuals who have walked by faith in Christ and their witness to us has demonstrated God is able to do that in you and through you. As a father loves a child, so God walks beside you. Don't let Satan sideline you through the circumstances that you endure. But point to a greater and stronger hope that you have in Christ. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.